Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Disclaimer. Horror Hill is a horror anthology podcast bringing you scary stories from all corners of the internet and beyond. As such, certain stories include content that some listeners might find offensive. Listener discretion is advised. Hello again, listeners, and welcome back to Horror Hill. I'm your host and narrator, Eric Peabody. And tonight's episode will be focusing on something that many of us find terrifying even without any supernatural elements. The United States healthcare system. Whether it's due to fear of going under the knife, uneasiness in large, impersonal buildings, or the ever-present threat of simply not obtaining healthcare because you had the audacity to not be born wealthy... Doctors and hospitals provide a lovely foundation for horror stories, and the two that I'll be presenting tonight should scratch that itch for you. First, we'll be reading, I Woke Up During Surgery, They Weren't Trying to Save Me, by Richard Saxon. In this tale, Benjamin Jones has the misfortune of waking up during surgery. He can't move, he can't speak, 
but he can feel what's happening to him. As if this isn't enough, what he's observing doesn't quite seem to match up with the procedure he was expecting. While this in itself provides a wonderful little horror vignette, it's the events following the operation that drive Benjamin to the very precipice of terror and desperation. After that, we'll be closing out our evening with I woke up in an empty hospital. The sky outside looks strange. By J.H. Salem. As if our previous story didn't have enough rude awakenings, our protagonist in this story, Eli Merriweather, has the misfortune to wake up in two strange scenarios. First, to a rotting, animated corpse next to him in bed at his home. Later, in an empty hospital where it seems as if the very fabric of reality is unraveling. Sometimes a guy just can't catch a break. You're listening to the standard edition of this program. If you'd like to help support Horror Hill and also remove these pesky ads, head to ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. You'll get instant access to hundreds of ad-free stories, and we can scale back some of our uh, less savory means of generating money for the show. By the way, you wouldn't happen to still have all of your organs, would you? And now, from author Richard Saxon, I give you... I woke up during surgery. They weren't trying to save me. All right, let's get this started. Incision time, 9.45. A manly voice said loudly, jolting me awake. I felt groggy, and my eyes were kept shut by tape covering my eyelids. I tried to call out for help, but quickly realized I couldn't form any words, nor move a single muscle. Was I paralyzed? Had I been in an accident? My mind was too shattered, unable to recall even the simplest information. Prepare the device, part 108. We don't have much time to get it in place, another voice said. A sharp pain shot through the back of my head immediately followed by warm liquid trickling down my neck. I wanted so desperately to cry out in pain, but I could do nothing but listen to what happened as something dug deeper into my skull. Apply pressure right there, will you? Don't you see the bleed? The first voice said. It's not working. The second responded after a moment. Fine, then cauterize it. Skin flaps already made. The smell of burned flesh filled the air, making me feel sick. Luckily, I could feel my stomach had already been completely emptied. I knew I hadn't eaten in quite some time. Then it dawned on me. Surgery. I was in surgery. But I hadn't fallen asleep, and I couldn't move. The surgeon continued to burn my bleeding flesh, and as the pain intensified, I struggled to think back. All I had was a vague memory of a disease, some sort of cancer growing inside my abdomen. If that was the case, what were they doing inside my head? How's he holding up? One of them asked, 
His BP and heart rate are a bit high, but he's under for sure. Don't worry. Another responded. While I could hear and feel everything they did, I had no means of communication. Perforator drill? They started the drill up, shaking my body as they put it against my skull. The vibrations didn't hurt, but the cracking sound produced as they dug through was one I would never forget. Shit, did you go too deep? Nah, he's fine. Once the bone was cut through, the pain slowly disappeared. With the brain having no pain receptors itself, I could do nothing but listen to the sickly squishes as they rummaged around inside my head. Is the device charged yet? The surgeon asked. Charged and ready, doctor. I felt a vague sense of pressure as something was pushed deep inside my head. Desperate and terrified, I tried to think about the moments before surgery. I'd gone in for a tumor on my pancreas, and while I was no anatomy genius, that shouldn't be anywhere near my head. Put the electrodes around the device entry and set it to 650 milliamps. A high-pitched tone was produced as they powered up the device, followed by a violent jolt, and then... darkness... When I finally regained consciousness, I was lying in a hospital bed. A smiling woman stood in front of me. I recognized her as one of the prep nurses, though I hadn't caught her name yet. Everything went great, Mr. Jones. We got it all, she said, ecstatic. Um, what? I responded. It's all right. The drugs might make you a bit woozy, but you'll be good in another hour or so. A doctor I hadn't seen before entered the room, holding a chart and a syringe containing a crimson but transparent liquid. Good afternoon, Mr. Jones. My name is Ethan. I'm just here to check up on you and finish up with the treatment. I peeked down at my abdomen. It stung and was covered in a large band-aid. Does it hurt? He asked. Yeah, quite a bit, actually. We'll up the dosage of your pain medication in a moment. But first, let me give you the final part of your treatment. Now, this stuff burns a bit, he said, waving around the syringe. But even with most of the tumor gone, we've still got to kill off the stragglers. Don't want them to fester. As he prepared to inject me with the contents of the syringe, my mind started to clear. The memory of my surgery returned with a blast, and I violently retracted in bed, ripping the IV line out with me. You drilled into my head! I shouted. What are you talking about? Ethan said, visibly confused. I woke up during surgery. I heard everything the surgeon said. They put something inside my head! Ethan nodded his head in understanding. Mr. Jones, it's fairly normal to experience vivid dreams while under. Some even feel like they're floating around in the room, watching the surgery, and some just have weird dreams. It's perfectly understandable to mix up fantasy and reality. No, it wasn't a dream. I even felt it! I argued as I reached for the back of my head. There was no wound. My hair still intact and there was no sign of any sutures. As I said, 
perfectly normal. I calmed down a bit due to his explanation and let him reset the IV and finish the injection. It burned as the liquid entered my veins, searing up my arm and neck. I felt lightheaded. All done, Ethan said, smiling. You should rest now. You'll be here for observation for a few days, but you'll be allowed visitors by tomorrow. It had all seemed too real, yet my supposedly incurable cancer had been eradicated only weeks after categorically being told I would die within six months. Even the setup before the surgery had been suspicious, starting from nothing more than a phone call from a Mr. Burke representing a newly founded Artifacts Pharmaceuticals. They were working on a new treatment for terminal cancer patients, he had said. He told me I'd fit the criteria for the treatment, free of charge, seeing as it wasn't FDA-approved yet. We set up a quick meeting, and he explained the procedure, which would combine surgery with their new chemotherapeutic drug. At the time, my choices were to either die slowly and painfully from cancer, or to die quickly on the operating table. Naturally, being in the last stages of life, I took the gamble, and that's how I ended up miraculously cured, against all odds. The next week came and went. I was discharged with a bottle of pain medication to keep me going while I healed. Yet, I just couldn't shake that horrific nightmare from the day of the surgery. Out of curiosity, I looked through the papers I had been given by the company, surprised to find that nowhere in the 50-page long document did they ever mention the name Artifacts Pharmaceuticals, nor the name of any employee. I tried to call the number they had given me, but it continuously returned a busy signal. Confused and haunted by the nightmare, I could do nothing but rest and hope they'd call me back in for a checkup. Time went on, and after a month in recovery, which I spent mostly catching up on my favorite TV shows, I was ready to return to work. First order of business was a meeting with my boss, Daniel Harrison. He had always been good to me and allowed me all the time off I needed while going through with the treatment. While it wasn't an amazingly well-paid job, I was happy to be there. Benjamin, great to have you back! He basically shouted as I entered the office, embracing me in a rough hug. We then returned to more professional means of greeting each other and shook hands as we went on to talk about my future at the company. I sat myself down in front of the desk when I started hearing a bizarre sound, feedback-like static, though I couldn't for the life of me figure out its origin. It was just vague, barely audible at first. I tried to ignore it, but Harrison immediately noticed something was off. "'Are you all right? You look a bit pale,' he said. "'Yeah, I'm fine. Do you hear that?' I responded as the sound kept increasing in volume. Hear what? Uh, never mind. My head just hurts a bit, I said, downplaying my increasing anxiety. He gave me an odd look while pondering what to say next, then he sighed. <sighs> look, Benjamin, I know it isn't easy to recover from such an ordeal. It's a burden, both mentally and physically. In fact, I once went through a similar situation many years ago, and it left a scar on my self-esteem, like I wasn't strong enough to survive without help. 
I'm sorry, I never knew, I said, the sound reaching unbearable levels. That's all right, I never really talk about it. It was almost 15 years ago anyway. He paused for a moment, his wide smile turning to a confused look. It was odd, though, thinking back. I was supposed to be a terminal case. They told me I'd be gone within a year. Then, out of the blue, some guy showed up at my doorstep proposing a miracle cure. His story hit too close to home for comfort. I can't even remember their name. Everything following the surgery feels somewhat vague, distant. What was the company called again? He asked himself. My boss chuckled. <laughs> it's all gone. I think something beginning with A. Hmm. Art something? Artifacts Pharmaceuticals? Yeah, that's the one! He yelled, barely audible over the static sound filling my head. How'd you know? That's the same one that fixed me up. They said they were new. That's odd, he simply responded. I excused myself from the office, claiming the headache was worse than I had thought, and Harrison said I should take as much time off as needed. No, he ordered me to take time off. No sooner had I left the office than the sound stopped. I let out a sigh of relief and hurried back home to once more go over the documents. After a fruitless search, I tried the internet. When that failed, I attempted more phone calls and looked through my email that was filled with thousands of junk messages. Nothing. If they had truly cured Harrison 15 years in the past, their drug had to be well past the experimental stage, and I demanded answers. The sound breaking my eardrums from within my own head my awakening during surgery, and the fact that no one I knew had ever heard about Artifex Pharmaceuticals outside my treatment. It was all too much to handle. I decided that in the morning I'd return to the hospital and find one of the doctors working on my case, but my head was shattered. I needed to rest. That night I spent lying awake, unable to find any comfort in the fact that I was cancer-free. Around midnight, my phone rang. It was one of my old co-workers whom I hadn't spoken to since my treatment. Benjamin, he said in a somber tone. Alex, I didn't really expect to hear from you. Why are you calling this late? Is everything all right? It's Harrison. He... he's dead. Dead? When? How? Apparently, Harrison had suffered a brain hemorrhage from an undiagnosed aneurysm not long after I left the day before. Just like that, he was gone. Morning rolled around, and without a lick of sleep, I headed for the hospital. I asked the receptionist to speak to any representative of Artifacts Pharmaceuticals. She claimed she'd never heard of such a company. When I then asked for one of the doctors, I realized I couldn't exactly remember their full names. So, I asked if anyone in the surgical department was named Ethan. After doing a quick search on the computer, she simply shook her head. Defeated, I left without answers. I continued the fruitless internet search for a couple of weeks, but work quickly occupied most of my time. 
It was a dreadful place in the wake of Harrison's death. New management took over, and I had to start moving on with life. After half a year, I started to settle down in my new life, free from disease, but with an additional few pounds gained from the recovery. In a futile attempt at combating the weight gain, I returned to the gym, spending most of my time running aimlessly on the treadmill. I was just reaching my first mile, a huge achievement for someone like myself, when the god-awful feedback sound returned, almost knocking me clear off the treadmill. I glanced to my side, noticing a man in his mid-forties who just started running next to me. Unlike myself, he was in an ungodly well-kept shape, wearing an oversized tank top. It revealed a massive surgical scar on the side of his chest, nicely decorated with a tattoo of a tree reading Arbor Vitae beneath it. He noticed my pained expression and stare. You all right, mate? He asked as he walked towards me. The sound intensified as he got closer, making me clutch my ears in agony. But as suddenly as it had begun, the sound just stopped. The man in front of me fell over to the ground, briefly seizing before lying there, lifeless. He'd suffered a brain hemorrhage. At least, that was as much information as I could get from the gym staff, but I knew it was more than that. The man had died just like Harrison, that horrific sound preceding his sudden demise. Following the gym event, I visited three separate doctors, begging them to have a look at my head. CT, MRI, whatever they could offer, I'd take it. I even told them about my cancer treatment, but no record of my hospitalization even existed. The first doctor recommended a shrink, the second was clueless, and only the third agreed to give me a scan to check for anything abnormal. Well, Mr. Jones, luckily we settled for the CT because the MRI would have torn your brain to shreds. You really should have told me you had some kind of implant. Outside of that, the starburst basically made your scan unreadable. Excuse me? I said, confused but not entirely surprised that something in there didn't belong. I'm sorry, a starburst is what happens when we put metal in a CT scanner, but that's far better than putting you inside a giant magnet. You'd... No, I mean, what implant? I interrupted. The doctor showed me a section of the CT. A large, flare-looking artifact covered most of the picture, but in its center was a diamond-shaped metal object. I have to ask, have you had any brain surgery at all? I can't for the life of me figure out what this thing is, but it's clearly not a physiological formation, the doctor said, pointing to the thing inside my head. I... I don't know. Well, have you been in any accidents? Maybe a car crash or some other type? Sometimes debris stuck inside you can travel through your blood vessels, regardless of where the original injury was. I had pancreatic cancer, stage 3. They did surgery and gave some experimental treatment, but... What exactly did they give you? He asked, sounding more curious than concerned. It was just an injection, I think, and it was only once, following the surgery. Look, Mr. Jones, I'm not an oncologist, but as far as I know, there aren't any single injections on the market that can cure cancer. 
What you'd need would be months of chemo spanning over several sessions. Whatever they gave you, it wasn't for the cancer. He looked over my head, and to my surprise, he actually found a scar that I myself hadn't noticed, though only a minuscule one. Well, you have a scar for sure, but it's amazingly well hidden. Never seen anything so small from brain surgery. I tried to explain my experience during the surgery to the best of my limited memory, but he couldn't help. He told me he'd look into some different pharmacological trials to see if anything fit my explanation, but he didn't seem very hopeful. He couldn't even remove the damn thing, claiming it sat too close to my brainstem or something. So, here I am, living life as best as I can, still waiting for answers. Every now and then, the sound will return, and when it does, I just stop dead in my tracks and run the other way. I can't let anyone else die simply by getting too close. Whatever they did to me, I'm not alone. There are others out there with the same implants, and I fear we'll just have to wait to see what their purpose is. If anyone ever gets contacted by Artifacts Pharmaceuticals, don't agree to any of their miracle cures. They're not trying to help us. You've been listening to I Woke Up During Surgery, They Weren't Trying to Save Me by Richard Saxon. Richard Saxon is a newcomer to Horror Hill, and we're glad to have him. You can find more of his work at Velox Books, www.veloxbooks.com. Apartments.com has more pet-friendly rental listings than anywhere else, so finding the perfect place is easier than ever, and so is finally moving in together. Just the two of you. It's a big step. Lots of new responsibilities. Lots of adjustments. Most likely, they'll wake you up at odd hours to go to the bathroom, and you'll most definitely find yourself in trouble coming home late for dinner. They might even unroll all your toilet paper next time. It's just what happens when you two find a new place together, but you're not doing it because you feel like it. No, you're doing it because you love them because they're family. And that's why Apartments.com has the most pet-friendly rental listings on the internet so that you and your furry family can find the perfect new place together. Apartments.com, the place to find a pet-friendly place. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, 
You can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now, to close out our evening, I present, I woke up in an empty hospital. The sky outside looks strange. By J.H. Salem. I live by myself in a small studio apartment with no girlfriend, no kids, and very few friends. I like my privacy, and being a natural introvert, I have no problem being alone much of the time. So when a noise awoke me in the middle of the night, I instantly knew something was wrong. I heard ragged, choked breathing coming from right next to me. Looking over slowly, my eyes adjusting to the dark room, I saw a woman lying on my bed only a few inches away. She appeared to be looking right at me, and yet she had no eyes. I saw only the empty sockets, like two black holes spinning in the void. What in the fuck? I began to say when she grabbed me by the face. Her fingers felt as cold as ice, the skin loose and rotted above the bone, like slimy, soggy worms gripping my cheeks. She wrenched my mouth open, her black, fetid tongue rolling out of her mouth like a snake. It kept coming, twisting, inches of it, and then feet, covered in sores and smelling of rotting meat. Her empty black sockets continued to stare at me as it probed my lips with its tip. Then, without warning, the tongue shot out and went into my mouth. It tasted horrible, like raw meat left out on a hot day. I tried to pull away, whimpering, kicking, and scratching, but attacking the woman felt like fighting a statue. Even when my fingernails raked her face and left deep gouges that dripped dark blood, she didn't respond. The tongue explored my cheeks and teeth, caressingly, lovingly before going down my throat. I gagged, choking, pushing against her with all my strength before finally pulling away from her iron grip. I fell off the bed, the tongue sliding out of my mouth with a popping sound. The stench and the taste stayed with me. I gagged, feeling small pieces of the decaying flesh still stuck inside my mouth. I occasionally felt the writhing of a small maggot under my tongue or in the back of my mouth. Still whimpering and terrified, I began to crawl away over the cold wooden floor, spitting maggots and pieces of rotten skin as I went. I heard the boards creaking behind me as the figure rose on the bed. I could see she was naked, with much of the skin on her stomach shredded, leaving the organs exposed. In the streetlight coming in through the window, I caught a glimpse of her intestines as tightly coiled as a den of snakes. The torn tissue around it shone an angry red, seeming to glisten under the thick layer of flies that buzzed around the open wound. Help me! I cried, hoping one of my neighbors would hear and call the police. God, please! Someone help me! Just as I made it to the bedroom door... I felt cold hands wrapping around my ankle, starting to pull me back. With a rush of adrenaline, I kicked with my bare foot, feeling it connect with her nose. 
It made a dry, crunching sound as it shattered, almost like twigs cracking under a car's tires. I felt the grip on my ankle loosen for a moment, and I quickly pulled away. The bottom of my foot hurt like hell from the impact. I felt like I'd kicked a brick wall. But the terror that filled me when I looked up at her eyeless face got me moving. I jumped up, crashing into the wall before seeing the glimmer of the door handle under the dim light of the street lamps. I felt the fingertips of the woman on my shoulder as she reached out to grab me. I ducked and ran through the threshold, pulling the door closed behind me. I sprinted into the kitchen, the darkness growing deeper as I moved away from the windows of the apartment. I tried finding the lights, but my hand kept feeling smooth wall. Cursing, I gave up on the lights, moving to the drawers as the bedroom door slammed open. I ripped open one drawer after another, hearing soft footsteps approaching from behind. I patted the utensils inside with my palm, feeling spoons, forks, and finally, knives. In the process of trying to grab one, I slit my thumb wide open on the blade. A sharp, fiery feeling ran up my arm as the warm, sticky fluid covered my hand. God damn it! I hissed, feeling as the blood made everything under my hand slick. I carefully reached back in, touching the smooth wood of the knife handle. At that moment, I heard breathing behind me, the lungs of the abomination gurgling with congestion. I heard soft crackling as she exhaled. Her breath smelled like a stream of sulfur and roadkill. I grabbed the knife without another moment of hesitation, the injury to my thumb temporarily forgotten as I spun to face my attacker. I saw some slight movement in front of me. It looked like no more than a dark human silhouette in a black room. Using a slicing motion, I began to swing the blade from side to side in front of me, moving forward slowly. After a moment, I felt it connect with something. The woman's fetid breath ran over me as she shrieked. The knife felt stuck. I pulled against it, using the weight of my body and yanking back on the handle. With a wet sucking sound, the blade came loose. I ran past the woman towards the front door of the apartment, hoping that someone would have heard by now and called the police. I feverishly ran my hands up and down over the dark wall until I found the door handle. With a triumphant yell, I pulled it open, letting the hallway lights stream in. The hallway outside looked totally empty. I began to open my mouth to shout for help when the cold hands of the corpse pulled me back in. Without hesitation, I turned, seeing her standing only a foot behind me. I raised the knife high for a killing blow. The corpse seemed to grin at me, the gums blackened and teeth broken and jagged. The dark, eyeless sockets always seemed to look straight at me. As I brought the knife down, the woman jerked forwards, her face twisting in an animalistic scowl as she bit deeply into my neck. I screamed feeling the skin ripping as blood trickled down my naked chest. Reflexively, I slammed the knife into the side of her face. With a crunching sound, it went through her left ear, getting stuck for a moment in her skull. 
I felt her bite loosen as I yanked the knife out, pushing her away with my left hand. I raised the knife again and brought it down into her chest at an angle. The blood in her mouth, my blood, streamed down her chin as she stumbled and fell on top of me, knocking me to the hallway floor. She continued to bite at the air, gnashing her teeth as her body landed on top of me. She tried to bite at my eyes and nose, but I twisted the knife with both hands as it lay in her chest, pushing with all my strength. She slowly lifted off of me, soaking me in her blood. With a grunt, I threw her to the side, pulling the knife out as I did so. I got to my feet, running without slippers and dressed only in a pair of boxers. I slammed my fist on my neighbor's doors as I went, yelling for help. I don't know how long I was doing this, but it seemed only minutes later when two police officers stood there with their guns drawn at the end of the hallway. I looked down at myself, realizing I was not only mostly naked, but covered in blood and still holding the soiled butcher's knife. Get on the ground! Let me see those hands! One screamed. I was in shock for a second, not realizing what was going on. Get on the fucking ground now or we shoot! The other one yelled. Slowly, I dropped the knife. It clattered on the floor with a metallic ring. I raised my hands, lowering myself to the ground as they closed in around me, shouting orders and yanking my hands behind my back. I waited in a cell at the police station for hours in my boxers, freezing, hugging myself, trying to stay warm. They refused to let me wash the blood off myself, saying it was evidence. Eventually, they brought me to a room where they collected it and took pictures of me, taking my boxers as evidence. Finally, they took me to a shower and gave me five minutes to wash the thick, fetid blood off my skin. Afterwards, they gave me a bright orange jumpsuit and sandals to wear. Later that night, two police officers brought me into a very cramped room and took my cuffs off. A very fat police officer in a button-down shirt and dress pants sat there at a table, giving me a small smile and a nod. Mr. Eli Merriweather, he said slowly, as if tasting the name. Finally we meet. I only nodded. I knew where this little song and dance was going. I'm Detective Lawson. I'm from Homicide. I looked him over. He had small, watery eyes hidden under rolls of fat, eyes that gleamed with intelligence. His nose looked too small for his face, and he constantly licked his rubbery lips as he looked over the file in front of him. He asked me some bureaucratic questions, such as my birthday, occupation, living situation, and other typical police business. He asked me some questions about my account of tonight's events. I repeated everything just as it happened, and he sighed. Put yourself in my shoes for a moment, he said. A guy's found covered in blood in the middle of the night with a knife in his hand. The blood gets tested, and as it turns out, it's human, and it's clearly not his. It isn't yours, right? You didn't do some kind of weird gone girl shit? I shook my head. 
I don't know what that means, I said. Not a movie buff, huh? He said. I shook my head again. What I mean is, this isn't some kind of stupid prank. You didn't go to a medical waste area and steal spoiled blood for some kind of YouTube video or something, right? Because if you did, now is the time to tell us. If we waste all kinds of police resources on this case and it turns out to be something stupid, the judge is not going to look at you kindly. Of course not, I said. Okay, then, back to what I was saying. Imagine if you were a detective. You just found a man, mostly naked, covered in blood, holding a bloody butcher's knife in the middle of the night. He's running around the halls of his apartment building, screaming and scaring the shit out of everyone. He says he was attacked in his apartment, and there's blood everywhere, but no body to be found. What would you do? Look, I had every right to defend myself in the situation. I began before he cut me off. Moreover, the guy says that the blood came from a dead woman who magically appeared in his bed and attacked him. He says he doesn't know where the body went or how she disappeared. I mean, imagine you're on a jury and the defendant comes up and tells you that story. Would you believe it? I don't know what you want me to say. I told you everything already, I said. Look, Eli, right now only you know what happened, Detective Lawson said. We're just trying to get your side of the story. This is your only chance to tell us what happened. Once I leave this room... I've told you guys what happened over and over, I said, gritting my teeth. He leaned close to me. We're going to do a DNA test on that blood covering your body, he said. You do realize that, right? We're going to find the victim eventually. We always do. So why play this game? Just get it off your chest. We're all human, after all. Sometimes good people do bad things. Sometimes they get scared, or they get jealous, and they make mistakes. It doesn't mean they're necessarily a bad person, but maybe, just maybe, something went wrong, and they lost control. You have this all wrong, I said. How could I get rid of a body when there's blood everywhere? That doesn't even make sense. When would I have had time to get rid of the body? I was screaming for help. He completely ignored my objections. Was it a hitchhiker? A prostitute? Maybe you picked her up and she had a weapon. You got scared. Maybe it was self-defense. I don't know. Perhaps she attacked you first. But you clearly got rid of the body before your little act in the halls. Bodies don't just disappear, Eli. Until you tell us the real circumstances of the events, I might never know the full story. But if you're going to just sit there and give me this bullshit story about a poltergeist in your bed... First of all, that's not what a poltergeist is. Moreover, there's nothing else I can tell you. I said slowly, sighing. If you don't believe me, then what can I do? You do what you need to, and I'll do what I need to. A doctor came into the cell after a while. I sat there with my hands cuffed to a table, 
They clinked together in the silent hall as I shifted. Good evening, Mr. Merriweather, he said, smiling faintly. That's a very cheerful name you have, by the way. Merriweather. Huh, I like it. My name is Dr. Watts. I frowned. Why am I here? I asked. I was attacked in my apartment. I haven't done anything wrong. Ah, yes, I heard the story you told, he said, looking down at the file he held in his hands and flipping to a random page. He looked it over, chuckling. Quite a tale, I must admit. Is this your first experience with seeing, uh, dead people in your apartment? Of course it is, I said angrily. What kind of question is that? He marked something on a clipboard. And do you have any thoughts of harming yourself or others at this moment? He asked. No, I would never... Do you have a history of suicide attempts or violence? No. What kind of bullshit is... Have you ever been on a drug or alcohol frenzy of some kind? Are you one of those people who likes to run around with a head full of acid and a pair of tea shades? No, I exclaimed. And no one says tea shades anymore. He patted my hand condescendingly. Good, good, he said, rising from his chair. Anyway, I am legally obligated to inform you that at this point you are not free to leave. You are currently being detained on a 72-hour psychiatric hold, the length of which may be increased by a judge if deemed necessary for your own safety or that of others. Do you have any questions for me at this time? Yes, I said. What happened to the rotting woman in my bed? From the jail, they brought me to the hospital. A doctor stitched up my thumb in the ER, and then I was wheeled, handcuffed and scared, to an empty hospital room. A police officer sat outside the door, reading a newspaper and sipping some coffee. I sighed, looking out the window. I saw the eyeless woman there, hovering ten stories above the ground, her arms extended like those of Christ on the cross. She tilted her head at me, grinning, running her bloody fingers over the outside of the window. I began yelling for help. The police officer looked in, frowning before radioing something I couldn't hear. A minute later, a large, muscular RN ran in with a needle in his hand. "'What is it, Mr. Merriweather? What's all the commotion?' he asked. I pointed to the window, but when I looked over, she had gone. Only a bloody streak marring the clear glass showed she had ever been there at all. The RN shook his head as I protested. "'Look, there's blood on the glass!' I said." but he wouldn't listen. Kneeling down beside me, he began looking for a vein. This is just something to help you calm down, he said. Don't worry, you're going to feel a lot better soon, Mr. Merriweather. I'm not fucking crazy! I shrieked. He nodded, sympathetically. I never said you were. We don't use the term crazy here. You're just having a temporary medical episode. You're going to feel a lot better very soon. Trust me. 
This here is a combination of lorazepam and haloperidol, he said, patting my hand. You might know them better as Ativan and Haldol. They should help with your symptoms. A moment later, I felt the needle piercing my skin. My eyelids drooped as a sense of tiredness and lethargy overtook me. Before I knew it, I had fallen asleep. I woke up with a start, sitting up in my bed. My head pounded in time with my heartbeat. I felt confused. I looked around, wondering where I was. I found myself in a small cell with white walls and a small bed. A metal desk stood welded to the floor at the far end of the cell. Memories started to flood back in. Waking up in my bed, the attack, the interrogation, and finally, the woman flying outside the window. I got up slowly, my vision turning white for a moment. I thought I might pass out. What kind of drugs had they given me? It took every ounce of willpower I had to not turn around and go back to sleep. But my mouth felt as dry as a desert, and I needed water. I walked towards the door. Hello? I called. Can I please get some water? The cotton mouth is... I leaned against the thick metal door, watching in amazement as it opened soundlessly. I looked up and down the hallway, seeing no one. Outside my room, a chair was set up, a steaming cup of coffee laid on the ground next to it, and a newspaper draped over the seat. But I saw no sign of the police officer. I looked towards the nurse's desk, seeing it empty as well. With a pounding heart, I went from room to room, looking in the unbreakable glass windows. Though I saw books flopped open on the beds, lamps on, and TVs playing, I didn't see a single patient. I moved towards the windows, looking outside for people walking and traffic passing by, but the roads looked empty and the buildings all stood dark and silent. The sky overhead looked black and empty, without a star or a cloud marring the blank, flat abyss stretching above the city. This is bizarre, I said, my voice sounding far too loud in the eerily quiet hospital. Far below, I heard machinery turn on, a dull, thudding sound that reverberated through the pipes and shafts, causing clunking and sputtering noises to echo through the building. Still dressed in my sandals and bright orange prison jumpsuit, I made my way to the nurse's station. I saw a mini-fridge behind the desk stocked with juices, water, and soda. Giving thanks, I grabbed a handful of drinks and began chugging them. The cloudiness in my head seemed to dissipate as I drank my second bottle of apple juice. I felt much more alert, and the spots in my vision had gone. Perhaps the drugs the RN had given me were just leaving my system. I looked at the computers, noticing that the internet and telephones still worked. I thought about trying to call for help, but then I remembered the last time the police had shown up. I put the phone back on the receiver, sighing. I made my way through the hospital with a soda in hand, continuously sipping fluids to try to get my energy back up. 
I found surgery rooms with soiled gloves and sheets next to the operating tables, but no other sign of any patients or doctors. A couple soiled scalpels gleamed on the tray, the coating of blood drying and cracking on the carbon steel. As I made my way through the corridors, I came across a familiar name on a door. Dr. Franklin Watts, M.D., Psychiatrist. The room was filled with hardcover books and filing cabinets. A large desk stood in the middle. I saw a file open on the table. I looked at the name on it, and even upside down I could read it easily enough. Merriweather, Eli. I grabbed the sheet on top and had started reading it when I heard boards creaking behind me in the halls. Hello? I called. Is someone there? There was no response, but now I could hear someone breathing. It sounded gurgling and congested, their lungs full of fluid. It sent a chill down my spine as I remembered where I had heard that breathing before, in my apartment earlier tonight. Oh shit, I whispered, feeling very hot all of a sudden. I started sweating as I stared at the door, the only way in or out of the office. I looked at his desk, seeing a heavy metal trophy with a marble base. I lunged for it, spinning around as the door crashed open. In a blur, the naked, gore-covered woman came into the room, her movements inhuman and jerky. Her eyeless face grinned as she jumped at me, showing off her jagged teeth. I swung the statue at her face. It connected hard with the side of her temple, a dull thud echoing around the room from the impact. But she didn't go down. Shaking her head, she opened her mouth wide. I watched her face come towards me, as if she wanted to kiss me. But instead, she grabbed me and held my head in place as her mouth snapped forward. I felt a cold stinging on the left side of my head, then an agonizing fire as blood poured from the place where my ear had been. Pulling away, I saw her grinning face holding the severed body part between her bloody teeth. She spit it on the floor, a cloud of flies rising from her rotting flesh with her sudden movements. Peace, thy peace. She hissed in a choked voice as I sank to the floor, my hands clasped over my spurting ear, my vision growing dark. I woke up alone, feeling drugged and weak. The injection the RN had given me apparently hadn't left my system as much as I thought. Dragging myself up with the help of a desk corner, I looked out scanning the hallway for movement. As I pulled the paper I had taken from the file out of my pocket, I ran my hand over my mutilated left ear. I felt small pieces of cartilage still sticking out towards the bottom. Near the top, I felt only smooth bone and slick blood. I unfolded the paper from Dr. Watts's desk, reading his notes on my file. They were sparse and to the point. 
The top of the paper was covered in my blood, and I couldn't make out the words, so I started reading near the middle. May exhibit a legitimate fugue state, or signs of malingering. The latter can only be ruled out by in-depth psychiatric examination. Police believe Mr. Merriweather was involved in the disappearance of Mary LaBelle, age 26. They've been unable to collect sufficient evidence to bring charges, however. I discussed the potential violent behavior of Mr. Merriweather with the judge in this case. He stated that current legal evidence is insufficient to bring murder charges as regards to the events of the last few hours. Because both the Mary LaBelle case and the current case have insufficient evidence, we plan to detain Mr. Merriweather under a psychiatric hold. At the bottom of the page, I saw a grainy picture of a beautiful young woman. It was the same one who had appeared in my bed, the eyeless corpse. At that moment, memories started flooding back. I remember the bonfire well. My friend Luke had invited me. I brought a couple cases of beer. By midnight, I had polished off an entire case by myself. Mary had been in the corner, hanging out with a couple of her friends and drinking. Then, someone had pulled out some coke and began cutting up lines with a razor blade. They passed it around, and I sniffed a couple. After that, I felt wide awake and totally sober. I cracked open another beer, and then my memory gets foggy. I remember drinking a lot more, sniffing some more coke, and then getting into my car. I remember driving down a dark road, swerving and blaring the radio, and then someone was walking on the side of the road, and I tried to swerve. The next thing I remember, I'm standing outside headlights blazing behind me. A woman's body is under my car. The skin on her stomach is gone, and I can see her intestines and stomach through the gaping wound. Oh God, oh shit, God damn it, you killed her! I said to myself, taking handfuls of my hair and gripping them hard. The pain brought me back to reality. She didn't speak. Her eyes simply stared, her pupils wide and black in death. Well, I thought, still panicking, still coked up and drunk. No reason to ruin two lives over this. She's already dead, and I'm alive. Why should I go to prison forever? I got back into the car and backed it up slowly, hearing a thud and a crunch as the tire backed off of her body. Stumbling out of the driver's seat, I began hyperventilating and panicking, trying to decide what to do. I walked in circles around the car a few times, stepping over the silent, broken body of the woman as I went. Weeping silently, though I knew not whether for myself or for her, I decided on the decision that I knew was inevitable. I grabbed her behind the shoulders and dragged the body into the thick woods beyond, the smell of copper strong in the air. The next day, I came back with a shovel, 
and found the animals had eaten her eyes and some of the softer parts near her stomach. The black sockets seemed to stare up at me accusingly as I dug the grave. It came back to me, a flood of memories. I remember the paranoia after. I remember not sleeping, checking outside the window every few minutes, expecting to see police lights in my driveway. But they never came. Over time, the paranoia started to fade, and I wondered whether I had gotten away with it. But maybe we never truly get away with anything in life. Perhaps if I went back there, to that lonely road next to the nature reserve, I'd dig into the black earth and find the grave empty. Yet I know in my heart that I'll never get a chance to see that. I'm not leaving this building, after all. She already told me the plan, and I fear it. She'll get her revenge, piece by piece. I'll eventually die from it, screaming myself hoarse in this empty hospital, a place where my worst fears became realized. You've just heard, I woke up in an empty hospital. The sky outside looks strange by J.H. Salem. J.H. Salem is a horror writer who has written many short stories and series for channels on YouTube, Reddit, and TikTok. You know, listeners, it isn't lost on me that some of you will be going to bed directly after listening to this episode. I'll keep my fingers crossed that you wake up in the place you expect to, and without any unexpected company. That being said, if you do wake up somewhere odd and frightening, just close your eyes and tell yourself that it's a dream. One way or another, things should resolve themselves soon. Please join me in thanking Richard Saxon and J.H. Salem for their stories this evening, as well as Velux Books, who have previously published Richard Saxon's work. Thanks to you for visiting Horror Hill, and I hope to see you next week for more chilling tales. Until then, listeners, stay spooky. You've been listening to the Horror Hill Podcast, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights. Tonight's episode was hosted and narrated by yours truly, Eric Peabody. Original music provided by Eric Peabody and Nikki McSorley. Finalization by Eric Peabody and Craig Groshek. Got a terrifying tale of your own that you'd like performed? Email it to us at natalie at chillingtalesfordarknights.com to have your work considered for future production. Seeing as how we're all living in a technological nightmare of our own devising, I'll ask you to follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights on social media and upvote, subscribe, and hit the bell notification icon if you're listening to this on YouTube. Not only will you have appeased the dark gods of cyberspace, but you'll be kept in the loop as we prepare more terrifying content. If you'd like access to uninterrupted horror, free of ads and these annoying bookend segments, 
Might I recommend becoming a patron? You'll get access to hundreds of episodes of this show, as well as everything from the other programs in the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights cabal. That means all of Otis Jiry's scary stories told in the dark, Drew Blood's dark tales, Paul J. McSorley's Fear from the Heartland, and more. It's a veritable smorgasbord of horrific delights. As for me personally, I'm on most social media as Viking Guitar or Viking Guitar Productions. I'm always on the lookout for new stories to narrate and new music projects to mix or master. If that's of interest to you, feel free to reach out and we can talk turkey. Also, I will be back next week with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. If darkness is what you're after, listener, your search is over. Yet, let it be known, you haven't found the darkness. The darkness has found you. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.